It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and uh, welcome to Fed Talk. I'm your host Ben Carnes, and uh, I'm joined today by uh, by a panel of uh, three uh, gentlemen who are, are going to talk a little bit about uh, some uh, federal workforce issues and uh, some labor issues and just what's going on in kind of the business of government. And uh, it's a timely conversation with a vote upcoming today on uh, what is expected to be a continuing resolution to uh, fund the government through December. Uh, so I'm joined by uh, Steve Lankert. He's the CEO of Government Executives International and the Safe Fed Project. Uh, he's also the executive director of the National Federation of Federal Employees, which represents 110,000 government workers and touts itself as the uh, oldest union representing federal employees. Uh, also joined by uh, Matt Biggs, who serves as legislative director of the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. Uh, they represent a membership of 80,000, which includes uh, professional, technical, and related positions, including in the federal government. Uh, and then also joined by Michael Farron, who's a research fellow from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And his research is focused on topics including labor, economic development, and transportation issues, uh, specifically the impact of government favoritism uh, in these fields. Gentlemen, thank you for uh, being with me this morning. Great to be here. Glad to be here. Thank you. So I guess the the most timely uh, topic probably right now. I think they were they're anticipating. I believe there was just a vote actually on the rule, and uh, they're anticipating a twelve thirty vote on the uh, budget negotiations, the continuing resolution that uh, that's expected to to fund the government through uh, December. Um, I know we, we, there had been talk of a uh, a possible government shutdown. Uh, obviously, if the the uh, continuing resolution didn't pass and. Uh, uh, the president at one point had indicated that he was he was open to that prospect. Um, I guess you know representing uh, ver- varying numbers, these huge swaths of, of federal employees. Kind of what is uh, what is the experience right now uh, in the field on the ground? Um, you know, with your members and uh, with the continuing resolution. Obviously, I don't think there's anybody out there who's. Uh, a huge fan of of the continuing resolution. I know the D- Department of Defense was. Um, upset about the, this, this is the ninth consecutive continuing resolution kind of viewed as kicking the can down the road. But what has been the the tenor and the mood and, and, and uh, what are your thoughts on uh, kind of what's going on and what the possible outcomes might be? Um, I can start with uh, Matt, if you have any. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, with, with Hurricane Harvey and now Hurricane Irma um, uh, breathing down uh, Florida, um, our, our members, a lot of our members, we represent Army Corps of Engineer members, for example, they're actually out in the field working, helping, uh, helping the, the effort uh, of the people that are in those areas. So, um, you know, uh, those folks are working, right? They're not really concerned about the, uh, the CR or the government shutdown. Others, you know, we represent people at the Navy shipyards, for example, all four, um, and NASA and elsewhere. I mean, they, they're, they're always concerned about the uh, government shutdown. It seems like it's the normal order of business now. You mentioned that it's nine straight years, I guess, now we've had CRs. Um, that's not a, that's not a good way to do business. And in mm-hmm. fact, at the end of the day, it actually costs taxpayers 
uh, more money than actually just passing the appropriations bills the appropriate way. So our members are always nervous about a government shutdown. Um, it seems like an annual, actually more than an annual mm-hmm. event, and uh, they all they have to prepare for a government shutdown, and that also costs money. So it's very unfortunate that uh, Congress and the administration can't uh, do the actual fundamental work of passing all of the appropriations bills the proper way. I mean, I can only imagine, uh, you know, Steve, representing uh, such a large number of government workers, it seems like uh, you know, to face the prospect, I think yesterday was when the National Flood Insurance Program got its funding through December, for example, and, and with two hurricanes that are bearing down on the country, it seems like doing business that way would be be quite the challenge, you know, not knowing, uh, I believe they, were, they faced a, something like a $6 billion uh, budget deficit. And then just at the last minute before Hurricane Irma hits, they uh, you get the boost that they need to, to get through the end of the year. Um, you know, I, I how, how does that impact the uh, the ability of the, these uh, agencies to, to function? Um, it it's, uh, seems like it would be a, a bit of a stressful approach, you know. It is, and um, of the past 34 years, only three years have not included some kind of a continuing resolution, mm-hmm. uh, which is a tre- tremendous amount of CRs. So the, the you know CRs, all, it, it, this, the idea of the, the effect of a CR is actually becoming part of a, um, a culture of, of federal life. And uh, what the CRs do, it, well, first of all, people don't understand about a CR. It's just not a matter of funding. It's not a matter of people... Um, going home instead of reporting to work. Um, if there is a uh, workforce stoppage, also the authorities that go along um, with that stop as well, too. So the agencies lose their authorities um, to conduct a lot of this work. So it's not just pay and people. Um, it's also the authority um, that um, and the missions that the agencies are given that also has to come to a, a grinding halt as well, too. And to go through that process of shutting down and starting up again is a very costly and very time-consuming. Um, the, the, um, the, the CRs compress the spending year. So even if we have a CR, if it's a short-term CR, I think it's three months that they're looking at mm-hmm. now, but it compresses the spending year for the agency so that when they finally do get their appropriations, or if it's a continuing CR for the entire year, uh, their year now has shrunk from, from 12 months of spending down to nine months or down to six months. And so um, they have to get everything up and running uh, and pushed out the door and set up for the next season. Um, so it is very disruptive to agency operations to have to compress that spending. And also the money isn't spent um, as efficiently, uh, as effectively as it would um, if it's part of a strategic plan that's laid out over a period of months and years. And uh, now they're finding that they have to uh, get the money out the door before the year expires um, in a short amount of time. And that's just a, a bad way to do business. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the the hurricane actually kind of provides an interesting lens on those issues because you you see that scramble to to get the necessary funding or the requested funding, and, uh, and thus far, I mean, I, everything I've seen seems to indicate that you know uh, FEMA and the other agencies have have been doing a great job in responding. Um, but uh, it, it's it's easy to understand that that kind of wait, waiting until a hurricane is bearing down on the coast might uh, might cause some uh, some some frustration. Um, and Michael Fahrenheit, you're the the sort of the expert in the room on the uh, e- economics of uh, you know government uh, labor and and uh, the business of government. Um, I know you, you maybe kind of have a, a different perspective, but um, I guess what is what is your take on on sort of the economic impact of these continuing resolutions and doing this nine years running, and and what that actually means for the ability to plan and for um, 
And is is there uh, is there an argument in favor of a continuing resolution? Maybe you know it gets a lot of flack, obviously. But you know, uh, can you give us some perspective on that? Well, what I'd actually like to do is is go a little bit deeper and and uh, look at the the incentives behind uh, what is causing policymakers to do this. Uh, and uh, the you know the original way the the U.S. government was set up was you know the Constitution constrained. Uh, uh, government to do certain things and not others, and to uh, to specifically do things in a certain way. So it's it's the rules about how you make the rules. It's the rules about how government is done. And uh, public choice economics, which was one of the specialties of George Mason University, uh, the Nobel Prize winner James Buchanan came from uh, George Mason, uh, that started public choice economics. Uh, just looks at how. Uh, People in government, policymakers, essentially respond to incentives just the same way as ordinary people do in the economy. And so, uh, what that uh, what that proposes is that what we should do is create better institutions to govern government itself. Uh, that uh, rather than continuing to have this more than three decade old problem and discussing how problematic it is year after year, let's find a way to actually constrain ourselves and the way that we run uh, governance in our society to say, all right, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to allow ourselves to do this. Let's have a better, sustainable, long-term solution. Mm. And I mean, it seems like uh, there is, uh, I guess when you, when you talk about bodies that, that govern the way government governs, what does that actually look like? What, what is that? Well, Congress has rules for or for how it is allowed to do things or not do things, uh, and so um, the the idea that you perhaps would pass uh, some sort of law saying that uh, you are no allowed to have no longer than three continuing resolutions uh, before a, a permanent budget may be passed. That's just kind of pulling a, a, a random idea out of thin air. But at that third resolution. Uh, policymakers know that they actually have to do something at this point, otherwise you are going to have a government shutdown. And most people want to avoid that, so it would inspire actual movement uh, and and some solutions rather than just like we said, been kicking the can down mm -hmm. the road. Sure. Well, we're gonna uh, we're gonna continue the conversation when we when we come back. We just have to take a quick break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500 AM, and uh, we'll continue our discussion after this break. And a word from our sponsor. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. And uh, we're discussing the uh, government uh, funding measure and the, the continuing resolution that's, I think, slated to pass um, uh, at, at some, sometime after uh, noon today. Uh, I know that there had been uh, a significant number of, uh, of Republicans who had actually uh, broken from the president. It looked like about 100 were estimated last I saw this morning to potentially vote against it. But I, I think it's it's anticipated because it's tied to uh, you know, Hurricane Harvey funding that it will 
uh, it will pass fairly easily. Um, uh, Matt Biggs, legislative director at uh, International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers, I believe you, you uh, had a comment to make about the uh, continuing resolution and this perpetual problem, it seems, of uh, kicking the can down the road. Yeah, I mean, the, the way the funding bills work now in Congress, I mean, if you look at the makeup of Congress and, uh, you know, our former speaker, uh, John Boehner, he lost, he pretty much lost his job because it took him a while to realize in the House, you can't pass any spending bills with just the majority votes. Um, the way the Republican caucus is, is constructed now, you have a, a Tea Party part of that caucus, very conservative part of the caucus, and that's made up of, what, about 50 or 60 folks. So um, in order to pass any, any spending bills, I mean, those folks won't, won't – basically, there's about 40 of them that won't vote for any spending bills, okay? And they'll be part of that 100 mm-hmm. today that won't vote for it. Um, Unless they're from Texas or somewhere where they need yep. the aid, right? The ones right. that voted against Sandy. Uh, but, but, the, but it, you know, in order to pass spending bills now in this Congress and the way it's made up, uh, you need Democratic votes. So, uh, you know, the current Speaker, Paul Ryan, realizes that, and it gives the Democrats a tremendous amount of leverage But it also, when it comes to spending. But it also creates a situation where... Uh, you know, you 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 can't. You know, you're not going to pass each individual appropriations bills, each individual appropriation bill one by one, because the Democrats will, those the, the Democrats will have some of their priorities in that bill. So that's why we're seeing CRs, and ultimately you see an omnibus. That's a CR that basically funds the government at last year's fiscal mm-hmm. levels. Uh, eventually, you'll see an omnibus, and we may see an omnibus by December 8th, which is when the current CR is supposed to expire, the one that's going to pass today. It's sort of an interesting um, situation here because it's, you know, it, it, politics have been you know, unique the, the past couple of months. I think everybody would agree. Uh, uh, but this is an instance now where you have Republicans breaking from the president, and you also have, uh, as I was reading this morning, uh, a lot of Democrats who are a little bit upset because they felt like they could have gotten more out of negotiations than just you know, Hurricane Harvey funding. So I think uh, uh, quite a few members of the Hispanic caucus were, were expected to, to vote against it as well, feeling like um, with the DACA, recent DACA decision, et cetera, that, that maybe there could have been more gained. Um, has there been, you know, looking at now kicking the can until December and that we're just going to, to do the dance all over again just before Christmas, which seems like an annual tradition <laughs> lately. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you, uh, you guys represent a lot of federal employees, is there any sense of what that might look like? Is it is it possible to have a sense this early, given that we're just now getting some some clarity on it? Or what what might that look like? And uh, is, is there optimism? Is there uh, anything kind of in the field um, from from the, the people that you guys are representing about what that might look like? I think there's, there's definitely a lot of fear and anxiety um, just based on the president's proposed budget. Um, of um, huge cuts to agencies, um, across-the-board kind of cuts. Um, you know, those cuts just come with a top-line number, um, and they left it up to the agencies to figure out how to get from point A to point B, which is um, not exactly helpful um, and may make it actually impossible for the agencies to get there in sh- such a short amount of time. But I think among um, employees, I think they're definitely um, watching to see what comes out of the funding measures. I think most people uh, would be very happy with just a CR for the rest of the year and try to um, push this off a little bit longer. Um, so I, you know, I, I think the agencies also are on um, red alert status. Some agencies have already began making preparations by offering early outs to people and um, so forth, um, trying to reduce the size of their workforce, delaying hiring, and, and all those kinds of things. 
uh, in anticipation that something's going to come through that probably looks like it's in the form of a cut uh, somewhere between 1% and 20%. Mm-hmm. With, with the agency reorganization, it's that's another one that's looming. The, the deadline is, is September 30th. And so I know when, when Congress came back, they had you know, a couple of hurricanes to, to face, you know, re, uh, reauthorizing the uh, a national flood insurance program giving uh, funding to um, the, the various agencies that, that need it uh, to, to respond to the hurricane. Um, but with the September 30th deadline, I mean, that, that's a, it's a big thing before them uh, uh, and big thing before the, the federal government. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've heard from, uh, from people of, of varying political stripes, uh, those on the left and those on the right, you know, mostly there seems to be um, some, some bit of pandemonium. Uh, there's some sense in the agencies. It seems that uh, uh, they they don't know exactly how things are going to shake out. But I have heard a few, and there was a there was a gov exec piece at one point where th- there was a meeting uh, at which this the, the government um, reorganization, the agency reorganization, was touted as a great opportunity to potentially you know make some meaningful change. Uh, is there any is there any merit to that? I think there might be some differing opinions here on that. But um, can we see? Uh, despite the seeming chaos, can we see some some positive come out of that? Is are, are there opportunities because we're, uh, if you want to term it, kind of blowing everything up? Yeah, are there opportunities to to make positive changes where otherwise it might be uh, very bureaucratic and and difficult? Um, any any thoughts on that? Sure. Well, uh, to kind of address a little bit of that question and also what what Stephen said, um, the I think that the best way, if you're going to have some sort of agency reorganization and, and cuts in this way, it's probably better to uh, mandate a certain number and then let the agency figure out how to do it using their, their localized knowledge uh, to actually figure out the best places to cut for the agency rather than uh, a top-down approach that says, uh, agency director, you shall cut thus and thus and thus. Um, there may be other better ways to do it, but um, one of the uh, insights from economics is that uh, you should uh, allow the person with the best decision, the best information to make the relevant decision. Um, and generally, that's going to be the agency director or people at the agency. Regarding agency reorganization, one of the things I find really interesting in reading about this is that um, that morale is pretty low in a lot of federal agencies regarding, oh, this is yet one more version of cuts but it, or one more version of reorganization, but it's not going to do anything. So this is an opportunity to actually get something right and get something actually um, substantive done because um, Truman Bewley at Yale University wrote a book, um, very interesting, Why Wages Don't Fall During a Recession. And one of the reasons why wages don't fall during a recession is because worker morale is so critically important to productivity. So if there's a way that, that this agency organization can be done to improve federal government morale, then we're likely to see much better um, productivity and efficiency out of, out of the federal government in general. And uh, you, Matt and Steve, uh, you, you again, uh, you're, you're working on a regular basis with federal employees who, who you, uh, you represent. Um, it, I, I don't think that there, there's been a lot that, that has come out so far. I don't think we know what the agency reorganization is going to look like. But ha- have you uh, have you guys heard anything from from your members about uh, whether th- there might be uh, positive strides? It seems right now it's just sort of a, 
uh, a black hole of effort, you know, th that presumably uh, on the 30th and thereafter, we'll start seeing the actual yeah, specifics. And, but what right, might that look agency like? re reorganization directive, I, if I'm remembering correctly, was a part of the executive order on the hiring freeze. Mm -hmm. So that was part of that executive order. And there, there were, was some interesting language in that executive order. It even uh, tasked agencies for looking um, at work that they do, services they provide to the taxpayer that have been outsourced that could potentially be insourced back to the federal government. Um, and, and, you know, if, if you, if you want to look at, if you look at potential benefits, if this can get done and benefit the taxpayer, I mean, you, I think you look at that, that language there. So, um, but, but it's, you know, the devil's in the details. How is it going to be done? Who makes the decisions? I agree. The agencies, the agencies need to be steering this, not OMB, right? But the agencies need to give their plan to OMB. Part of that is the agencies uh, should be working with, uh, with the employees, and the unions in partnership because the employees also have great ideas on efficiencies in their very own agencies where they work. So it should be a collaborative effort. And if it's done right, and you know, unions are all for efficiencies and uh, better services to the taxpayer, if it's done right in coordination, um, positives can come of it. But you know, who knows how it's gonna how it's gonna be done. And regarding you mentioned insourcing would have been outsourced. Mm -hmm. I, I I don't know. I don't want to uh, presume, uh, Michael, your your stance on this, but I, I feel like that could be an area where there might be some uh, slight disagreement. I I know I, I had worked uh, you know for right leaning organizations in the past, and there there certainly seems to be a sort of skepticism of government just in general. There there is a, a bit of that from from where I'm sitting and. Um, there was an interesting piece recently, I believe it was Washington Monthly, that that just discussed the incredible growth of contractors and and, con and just, you know, when positions are often, um, if we remove them from the federal government, they, they just it's created over here. Um, do you have any, it's kind of interesting to me that with, from the economic standpoint, talking about the economics of government, um, uh, what your, your take on that is, is, you know, why is it better to do it one way versus another? Uh, is there an argument for doing it this way? Uh, well, like Matt said, I think the the answer is the devil's in the details, mm -hmm. uh, and the if there is a way to uh, outsource something that results in more competition for that thing to provide that service uh, to taxpayers, I think that is probably a good thing because competition has been shown over time and and constantly uh, through innumerable examples in the past to to drive up quality of services and products and to drive down the cost of providing those same products. Uh, whereas a monopoly on services or a monopoly on, on providing products almost inevitably ends up with higher costs and lower quality. And when we're talking about government services, that's truly a tragedy. So uh, the, but the question is, is um, can we, how can we get competition into it? And if uh, the contracts uh, and the outsourcing are not competitive, then that, that just keeps the same problem that um, that you were trying to solve in the first place. Uh, Steve, did you have anything you wanted to, to add to that? You know, the, the, the question of, of contracting um, is a tricky one, without a doubt. Um, and as, as uh, Michael said, um, you know, there are a lot of considerations. Uh, and we have a contractor workforce that is at least as large as the federal uh, civilian workforce. Yep. We don't really know how many contractors we have because it's hard to keep track of everything, uh, especially when uh, um, there's subcontractors involved and, and the reporting uh, is a little bit different but more ambiguous. Um, but, it, you know, I don't think that, you know, I think that there is a sense that, you know, there should be some fair competition 
um, within the market, um, as long as that competition is is legitimate and that um, the private sector isn't allowed to you know bend and sway numbers and uh, substitute um, uh, you know a lower level of worker for what would ordinarily be on a you know a federal staff um, and address some of those other uh, issues that can that can go from taking a captured workforce to a contract workforce, um, which um, is uh, a little bit more, um, um, I guess, uh, flexible in practice than, than a federal agency's workforce mm-hmm. is. Uh, and it's not that, you know, contractors play a very, very important role. Uh, not everything in the federal government should be done by federal employees. I don't think anybody feels that way, uh, even in the labor unions. Uh, there's definitely a role for contractors. Um, but the balance between contractor and Fed is one that um, it's political, um, it's based on a lot of theory, um, and it's really hard to get that balance. But in any competition, um, to discover whether it is a good deal or not, the competition has to be fair. And I think that's where most of the criticism has come from agencies and labor unions as well, is that sometimes they feel those competitions are uh, one-sided. And I, I remember in recent months there there was some talk from the the IRS. Um, th- there were some stories about uh, these uh, the contractors where they I think four or five had been tasked with with making calls to collect on uh, IRS debts and there, some complaints that it maybe there wasn't the same kind of oversight and regulation and that they were you know, making some questionable recommendations to taxpayers on, under the guise of some some official duty. And so it's interesting. I, I know every American during tax season has maybe experienced frustration of trying to reach somebody at the IRS. And so that, that balance of having these uh, you know contractors do it versus actually being able to reach somebody at the IRS who can help you with the questions sort of uh, an interesting glimpse at that that sort of nexus. Um, well, I mean, we, we discussed morale. I guess when we when we uh, come back from this break, we can talk a little bit about the federal pay increase. Obviously, a huge driver of morale or lack thereof. I guess uh, you're listening to uh, Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, and we'll be right back after this break. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. If you're a federal law enforcement officer, then you know to do your job, you tap inside sources. To have a voice on policy and legislation, you join FLIOA. And when you want federal law enforcement officer news and up-to-date federal court decisions, you read FedAgent.com. If you aren't reading FedAgent.com, subscribe today. It's free. Don't let this source pass you by. I'm John Adler, president of the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, and I approve this message. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. And uh, today we're featuring a discussion about uh, federal workforce issues, the Trump administration's agency reorganization executive order. Uh, and we're discussing morale within uh, federal agencies. And uh, it's difficult to think of, of anything that, that impacts morale, perhaps more than uh, pay and benefits issues. And uh, obviously we've got two, two representatives here from uh, from uh, federal uh, labor unions representing federal employees. And uh, so it recently ha- had the announced int- intention from the Trump administration to uh, to push through 
uh, a long anticipated uh, federal pay increase. I think it's a 1.9%, uh, 1.4% pay increase plus a locality just adjustment. So 1.9% pay increase for federal employees, civilian employees, and about 2.2% for uh, uniformed service members, if I recall correctly. Um, uh, I, uh, what is sort of the, the takeaway? I know this is, it's a, it's a multifaceted picture because it also involves uh, some of the retirement proposals. And so, whereas there may be some support for the pay increase, once you factor in the retirement proposals and what that looks like, it, it that could change the, uh, uh, the, the calculus. But uh, I'm in, interested to hear kind of what the feeling is right now. Um, are, are people largely pleased that at least something happened or is it just considered you know, too little too late? Um, what, what is the, uh, the takeaway? Um, well, uh, you know, it's a 1.9% uh, uh, proposed pay increase uh, from the Trump administration. Uh, if you uh, compare that to various proposals, including in the Trump budget, to uh, uh, force federal employees to pay more of their pay into the pension system, um, it actually results in a pay cut. And uh, the, some of the proposals are as high as six, six and a half percent. Federal employees pay more of their salary into, a, into, the, into the pension fund. Uh, it's a pension fund, by the way, that's not in danger. It's 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 funded very well, and it's going to pay out the benefits. Um, uh, but you know, if you, if you if you look at past pay increases for federal employees in recent years, I mean, you had a three-year pay freeze under the Obama administration, followed by I think a half percent raise and a couple ones. Um, you know, that's not keeping up with inflation. So federal employees, <clears throat> their take-home pay is actually going down compared to inflation. And then if you uh, if some of these uh, proposals to increase federal employee contributions to the pension system. Those are those are pay cuts. That's what they are. If some of those proposals were to pass, um, then you're looking actually at uh, at uh, at a decrease in their pay. So they are very concerning. Uh, not this is not to actually put anybody on the spot. What is the uh, what would be the rate at which is there a particular rate that that you guys were looking for in order to with the retirement cuts, at what point do they actually make an a pay increase rather than a decrease? Um, there, there's legislation sponsored by Congressman Conley. I think they, I think he had a three. Is that right, Steve? Three point four percent, I believe, or three point two. We was, we've yeah. endorsed we've endorsed that legislation, so we think that's a good number for this year. Um, and that's a bill that uh, that he introduced, and he introduced another one last year. It was higher, but you know we 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 would support that one over the president's proposal. Yeah, is the expectation, Steve? I don't know if you can speak to this. Um, I saw a federal news radio piece within the last couple of days uh, where the CBO was looking at five potential changes to federal retirement. Um, but it, it, my understanding is that most of the kind of uh, realistic retirement proposals that are expected to, to get a vote, et cetera, um, they are, are fairly similar. And uh, it, um, are there any specific proposals that? You're, you're optimistic about that, that could actually, um, uh, you know, result in a, a net gain for federal employees, or is it largely right now, I know a lot of them are looking at uh, increasing the required contribution and um, kind of what, what is, uh, I guess, your, your organization's thoughts on the, uh, the various proposals right now before the, before Congress? I don't think um, there's, there's a lot to be excited about mm -hmm. for uh, federal employees in general. I think they're very happy to have a pay increase, uh, certainly as it gets more expensive to live. Um, that pay increase is very uh, important to adjust for cost of living. Um, uh, you know, energy is more expensive. College is more expensive uh, for kids and, and uh, groceries, um, you know, gas fluctuates. So um, having that, that pay increase is uh, important. Not having it um, is very stressful uh, on uh, America's uh, working families. Um, in, in terms of the... Um, 
Um, ask that question again for me. I'm sorry. I know. I just the there. I know a couple of pending retirement uh, proposals, um, and as uh, Matt had mentioned, it. I guess the the end result of, of of at least some of them is that with the proposed pay increase. Uh, it ends up being a, a pay decrease because of the cuts to the re retirement. Um, so I'm just kind of wondering the, the landscape and your organization's take on the landscape and whether there's anything out there that um, you know you, you've gotten behind or uh, uh, kind of what, what you would like to see versus what's out there right now and uh, w with the retirement proposals. Because I, I my understanding is that what's uh, currently been proposed and what's likely to get a vote would would not be something that that you would be supportive of or your organization would be supportive of um right yeah and, and I, I think that you know that holds true and i i don't think that any as you can imagine any federal employee or uh, employee organization would be happy to see their their yeah. you know uh, benefits cut or right. pay contributions or, or more um you know one of the one of the effects of um the lack of pay increases over the recent years or the small increases is that um, uh, people have told me that they've stayed on the job longer. People who are retirement eligible have stayed on for a few more years in order to pad um, their savings uh, for a few extra years to, to make sure that they can make it through retirement with what they've got. So um, every time the government tries to save money that way, if that is the motivation or it may, it may simply just be a political motivation to not issue a pay raise, um, I think it ends up costing the government more um, because it does delay a lot of uh, people who are retel uh, retirement eligible who would otherwise leave. They stick around for a little while. As I've you know, I've been more involved, I guess, uh, increasingly with, with some of the agency issues, I've been hearing a lot in, in recent months about the, the supposed federal retirement wave. And I assume uh, you guys are good, good people to ask about that. Uh, because depending on who you ask, it's either the apocalypse looming around the corner, or it's it's greatly overstated and 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 never actually going to happen. Um, to what extent should uh, should lawmakers, should Americans, be concerned that that their uh, government is going to grind to a halt because suddenly there's there's a spat of of retirements in mass? Is is it something that's coming, or is it uh, sort of greatly overstated? It, it is. It is going to happen. Um, it's just a matter of when. Um, and I think some have anticipated that it should have already um, uh, began a few years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, I think people are sticking around a little bit longer and delaying that. Um, but they're getting older and older. And the, um, uh, the mean, uh, median age of, uh, of federal employees is it's climbing every single year. So at some point in time, everyone's going to get too old to work and they're going to have to stop working. Um, and if it is going to happen, I think, at a very rapid pace. I think OPM processes more retirements um, now than they have uh, uh, in recent years. And uh, what you're going to lose is a lot of those mid-level and, and senior-level managers. And you're going to have to uh, get people ready um, who are lower-level managers and people have not in supervisory positions yet, get them ready to step up to the plate and fill in those spots. But it is going to happen. It's a matter of time. Um, and uh, I think that agencies have start, started planning for that, especially um, uh, preserving some of the institutional knowledge that's going to walk out the door, mm -hmm. um, which would be uh, tremendously hurts uh, agencies uh, without the institutional knowledge about how to handle problems in the future, how to plan for the future, um, how to get the uh, uh, mission uh, to keep moving forward. Um, that's where that gap is going to occur at those critical operational parts, uh, mid-level and senior managers. 
Uh, and uh, I think it's just a matter of, of agencies preparing for that. When it'll happen, don't know, but um, it, it, I think it will happen within the next five years or so. Interesting. Uh, Michael, I wanted to, to ask, this is without even getting into the specifics of the actual um, you know, pay increase and the, uh, the retirement proposals, again, going back to sort of the economics question and, and, and an ideological, more ideological question, I guess, um, with some of the, the right-leaning organizations, the, the tendency to be skeptical of government and to, uh, you know, to want to, to shrink government and, and prefer smaller government, uh, it's interesting to me where that um, starts to either become more complicated or, or maybe in some cases uh, fall apart a little bit when you talk about morale issues and you talk about wanting government to actually run well. And uh, you see like the congressional, uh, the, the brain drain, the so-called brain drain on Capitol Hill, where, where uh, the, the average age is extremely young because people, people just can't afford to work there. So how do you find the balance and how do you... Uh, you know, weigh out those issues where you, you people want quality service from their government and they want people in place who are the best of the best, but it's difficult to do that without you know paying people and 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 factoring in pay increases, et cetera. So what what does that look like um, from your your standpoint? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the thing that everybody can definitely agree on is that we want great public services. The question uh, that is, then follows from that is, how do we actually get that? What's the process by which we do it? Is it by uh, government itself doing it? Is it by creating uh, systems for people to on the outside in the private market to, to bid to provide these services um, with then government oversight over it? Um, so uh, I'm not sure that I can specifically say like one is better or the other. The real question is, is how do we go about getting getting the best services. Um, and I think the, the economics answer to that is uh, essentially you, you create a, a market where people are empowered at their individual level on how to, to spend their money. Um, and so uh, that might come through. Um, uh, so, for example, um, one of my policy suggestions is to uh, uh, offer uh, voucher cards uh, for uh, critical government services like uh, handicap accessible um, transportation um, that creates a private market for that uh, by giving the customer the power. And then they then can go and say, I want to choose this company or that company, or I want to use the publicly provided service. And what that does is, again, coming back to the theme of competition, when someone has to work to get your business, they're going to do a better job. Gotcha. And with the uh, that, that also, I guess, ties a little bit into the, the, the retirement wave that we were just discussing. And I'll, uh, Matt Biggs, if you ha have anything to, to add to it, um, there's there's a question I've encountered. of You, you have the retirement wave coming. You have uh, this loss of institutional knowledge. What are you doing to as the federal government to replace that institutional knowledge and to bring people in and to have this sort of uh, pipeline into the government of, uh, of experienced people? Um, it, is the federal government, as it stands right now, are agencies doing a good enough job of recruiting and of competing in the labor market to bring in that talent so that, uh, you know, should a retirement wave hit, that, that the people that need to be in place are, are in place? And, and what can the government do better uh, insofar as it's not doing that? It's, it, uh, the answer to that, <clears throat> I believe, is no, but, but the, the, the federal government needs the tools to be able to recruit and retain these highly skilled individuals. And, and the retirement wave or the wave of people leaving 
uh, the federal government, I think, I mean, we see it in our union where our members, former members, are leaving the federal government. I mean, we represent highly skilled individuals that do work like, for example, cybersecurity, nuclear engineers, life scientists at NASA. <clears throat> when the Congress when the Congress and the federal politicians constantly uh, uh, are going after their pensions, going after their pay, going after their health care, um, what are these people going to do? I mean, they're going to go elsewhere and work. Uh, I'll give you one example. Uh, we have, uh, during the last government shutdown, during the shutdown, uh, we represent cybersecurity people at NASA, at NASA Ames. There was an individual there, uh, one of our union members, active union member, uh, he did cybersecurity. He made sure that people like uh, countries like the Chinese don't get a leg up on us, right? Cybersecurity. These are these are jobs that the government mm -hmm. needs. He during the government shutdown, he got offered a much more lucrative job in Silicon Valley, um, and uh, you know he's no longer he's no longer working for the federal government. Not that he he enjoyed and he, he enjoyed the public service. He liked to do the public service, but he was tired of the attacks on his job. He was tired of the government shutdown. He was tired of potential government shutdowns. So. I think the answer is federal agencies need the tools uh, to be able to attract the best and the brightest. And, and federal employees, you know, they don't get paid as much in the private sector, but what they do get is they get a chance to serve serve the American public, which they want to do, and they do it well, and they get a decent pension and health care in return, um, and they get a voice on the job through their union. Uh, if you take those things away, then the federal government's not going to be an attractive place to work. We're going to pick up that conversation. Uh, we've got to take one last break. Uh, you're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, and uh, we'll be right back. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Uh, we're entering our last segment of this show here, uh, joined by uh, Matt Biggs of uh, the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers, Steve Lankert of the National Federation of Federal Employees, and Michael Farron of the Mercatus Center at uh, George Mason University. Uh, and we, we were d discussing before the break um, uh, the, the, the federal government's ability to uh, to compete in the labor market. and. Uh, uh, I also want to give uh, give each of you uh, a chance. I know Steve, you you have some interesting projects going on right now that I wanted to to highlight before we uh, uh, before we have to conclude. Uh, but I had a had a question. I know I was, I was asking Michael a little bit about some of the ideological questions, like how how you reconcile certain things from uh, you know the right leaning perspective. But I'm I'm also interested. You know, we're coming off of the heels of Labor Day, and uh, I've certainly encountered plenty of Americans and plenty of people in my background who who maybe understand the argument for. Uh, you know, you're a West Virginia coal miner. That, that makes sense to me that, that why, why you maybe need to, to unionize to take on uh, uh, th these terrible working conditions, et cetera. But I, I've see, I seem to have encountered uh, a significant bit more skepticism about why it might be necessary to unionize as a, as a white collar employer, as a lawyer or, or a scientist. And it's just sort of interesting to me uh, to, to hear that case made uh, because I, I guess I've never actually heard it laid out. Um, and so I wanted to, to kind of put that out there to have two, two representatives who can, uh, who can address it 
thoroughly from uh, from your backgrounds. Um, what is the case for for uh, for those who are skeptical of the need to unionize the the, uh, the high level, very technical positions like the, the lawyers, et cetera? What is the case for that necessity? For the for the high level professionals, um, it, it really it's more of a quality of life issue than it is you know pay uh, and and sometimes benefits is an issue in there as well too as more private employers um, cut more and more benefits. Um, from their employees, uh, but it really comes back to a quality of life issue. Uh, because you're a doctor, because you're an engineer, because you're a lawyer, uh, you're not guaranteed a, um, um, a stable, happy, financially independent life like, like you may have been 30 or 40 years ago. And as uh, people are finding employers are trying to squeeze more profit out of the workforce, um, right now our, I think the number of our workforce in, in this country is 62% professional. Um, and I think it's a pretty wide range of what that captures. Um, but uh, among, of that uh, 62%, there is a growing um, um, discontent with employers who are asking people to work longer hours, uh, fewer pay increases, and they start cutting away benefits and pensions are almost gone, uh, and then other, uh, um, uh, other benefits as well, too. Um, of course, health insurance goes up every year and, and all those kinds of things. So uh, I think more and more professional people um, who um, historically haven't been associated with labor organizations are starting to look to say, hey, who can help me? Who can represent me to my employer? I'm working too hard. I'm barely getting by. I'm supposed to be this, you know, big time professional making a big salary, um, but I'm hurting here. Uh, and I think those quality of life issues, I think, are becoming more uh, prevalent among the professional, uh, um, uh, different professions and why they are looking at more and more labor unions. And I, uh, uh, I don't know if, if Matt, you wanted to jump in on that. It's just yeah, obviously Steve, in your, your wheelhouse as well. No, Steve, Steve's absolutely right. I, I mean, and we represent, uh, you know, like scientists and mm -hmm. engineers right. and uh, judges, judges. We represent ALJs at the Social Security Administration, and you know, they weren't, they weren't, they had an association. They weren't always unionized, and one of the reasons why they did unionize is because management wouldn't talk to them about their issues. Um, you know, flexible work schedules, right? Uh, these kind of things that they want to have a voice on the job have a voice in their workplace and be able to impact. So that, you know, that that's why, just like blue-collar workers, white-collar workers um, sometimes are treated unfairly and they need the protection of a union. So it's not necessarily the wages, uh, but it's the other the other things that are important in your, in your working lives. The other thing, too, is like scientists, engineers working on nuclear submarines. These are, these are uh, sci scientists want to have their uh, scientific research and work um, independent. They want to do that independently, not influenced by management, not influenced by whoever's in office or the politics of the day. Nuclear engineers want to ensure that those nuclear submarines going out to sea are safe, and they're not pressured by management to cut corners. Um, they need the protection of the of the union to be able to speak up when there's something wrong and to be able to protect the work that they do. And I, I know that we're, we're I, I don't want to uh, jump past this without giving Michael at least a chance to jump in. I know we're probably not going to solve uh, uh, <laughs> all labor issues uh, here with the, the last nine minutes we have yet, but I certainly want to give you a chance to well, also I'll jump try, in there. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, no pressure. So the, the question of, of unions growing more into white collar work as opposed to previous blue collar work, um, I think there was less, there's more reason, at least initially, for unions for blue collar workers simply because there's more competition between workers for the available jobs. Whereas uh, if you are an engineer or a scientist, uh, you have a very special skill that is a uh, that is a scarce, and so you can command uh, better attention and and, and better um, treatment a lot of 
of times from your employer. But uh, and especially in an area like Washington, D.C., where we have some of the highest uh, education, high, high, most highly educated population in the nation, um, that kind of um, starts to fade away. Uh, the the quality of life issue, I think, is is a good one to make that employers are trying to squeeze more more profit out of their workers. Uh, but it's also under, important to understand that workers are always trying to squeeze more profit out of their uh, employers too. It's um that's the economy. But to uh, the I'm actually probably uh, going to say something that might surprise a lot of people, and that I'm actually pretty much pro union. Mm-hmm. I think that workers getting together and, and uh, organizing for their, their mutual benefit is a good thing. But there's one specific thing that is wrong with the way that our union law is, is currently structured, and that is it creates a monopoly uh, on labor uh, in a given firm that, or, or for the government. And so w- what I would propose is that uh, simply to do away with that, allow unions to compete against each other. And at that point, again, like the theme that I keep coming back to, competition drives economic growth, drives higher quality. At that point, union the, the competing unions would be competing to attract the highest quality workers. And in doing that, they would have a, a greater leverage um, uh, with the firms themselves. That, that actually, I've, I've heard whispers um of uh, as for the current landscape of, of you know all these different potential Title V reform bills, I know that there was the Veterans Affairs uh, Accountability legislation that that recently passed, and is it's speculated that that could be expanded to to other agencies as well. Um, is there any uh, way to have uh, sort of realistic expectations of what's coming down the pike um, from uh, from the labor union perspective? Of again, kind of going the same as the uh, the retirement plan, what, what you anticipate seeing as far as potential. Uh, labor law reforms and uh... um, you know it's it's concerning the uh, you know the veteran uh, a lot of, a lot of people on the hill that voted for that veterans package particularly Democrats wouldn't necessarily vote for a larger package that does the same thing to the rest of the federal government so that's good but it's bad that that passed it did basically gut the worker worker rights and due process rights of VA employees many of them veterans themselves so you know we were disappointed that that passed but. Yeah, we, we are concerned of uh, larger efforts to uh, to uh, eliminate and erode um, due, proce- due process protections and collective bargaining rights for federal workers. So, you know, whether it's going to happen or not, or, or what form that takes, is 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 anybody's guess at this point. But but we're we're concerned and on the lookout for it. Mm-hmm. And we're we're coming up pretty close to the time gets away so quickly. Uh, I've got about. Three or four minutes left. I know uh, Steve Linker, you you had some interesting, uh, uh, not not to uh, to give everybody whiplash, but some interesting uh, projects that, that you were working on. And I wanted to open it up to the panel members just to hear what you're you're currently working on, what you think is important, and I'm I'm sure that there's some things that we we didn't touch on. Um, but yeah, you've got you've got a couple of uh, projects right now: the uh, Uphold the Oath uh, project and the Science Protection project, and then you're also part of the Safe Fed project. What how do those interrelate, and what are those? So, so all three of these these projects came up um, to life in the past uh, six months or so. Um, the Safe Fed project has been around for a little bit longer than that. Uh, talking about the Uphold the Oath project. So if you uh, go to upholdtheoath.org, um, this is a fantastic um, a project that was started um, by, um, uh, it's a bi- nonpartisan project. Um, both uh, Democrats and Republicans are involved in this, and of course, apolitical people as well, too. The purpose of Uphold the Oath is to have an oath renewal for federal employees. So most feds, when they take their jobs, 
uh, they they give an oath of office, and that's the last time they ever see the oath until you know for their their entire career. Um, this is simply is you go to the oath, you grab or you go to the website, you grab your phone, uh, you recite your oath of office, um, take a ca- uh, capture of it on video. You can uh, upload it onto the website, and when we collect enough of those, we're going to put them in PSA style um, media appeals. Uh, the purpose of it is to for, so feds can celebrate the fact that they're there to serve their country and serve the Constitution and also to let the public see the faces and voices behind the people that are making the country work every day. So it's UpholdTheOath.com. I encourage everyone to go there who is an active fed or a retired fed and do that. Uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists has a program called the Science Protection Project uh, for anyone involved in the scientific community who believes that information is being repressed or rewritten by uh, political forces or political appointees. If you go to the Union of Concerned Scientists website, um, that is a confidential service that they offer um, for people who want to uh, report uh, something uh, to uh, attorneys who will then evaluate um, whether it's something interesting uh, that needs to be addressed uh, publicly. It is confidential. Um, and the uh, last project is a Safe Fed project, which is my own project, safefedproject.com. Uh, it's a place for federal employees to um, go um, to uh, both the positive and the less positive sides of life uh, for professional development, uh, for appointees uh, getting into a new position, or on the less positive side of life if somebody gets in trouble with a boss or if you have morale problems in your agency, if you believe you're being targeted by a supervisor, if you're on investigation. A Safe Fed Project is a free service. Uh, the federal employees can go to to ask the questions, hey, what's going on? What do you think of this? What are my next steps? You know, do I need an attorney? Do I need to um, take classes? Whatever it may be. Okay. And we've uh, only got a few seconds left here, but I want to really quick, if there's anything you want to plug, uh, Michael. Sure. Uh, tax reform is in the news right now. And yesterday I just testified before the House Small Business Committee about an idea that can help solve the skills gap mm-hmm. in the labor force, that we should treat uh, acquisition of skills and training as a uh, investment in the same way that factory machines are an investment. Okay. Uh, and Matt, anything you want to get in? Uh, nothing. To add. No? We, okay. we participate in all of Steve's programs. We thank him for it. And uh, unfortunately, the the time got away from us. I believe that's all the time we have for the show today. But I thank you so much for joining us, gentlemen. Uh, Fed Talk is brought to you by the federal employment law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. And uh, have a good weekend. Thanks for joining us.